and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a college student and a co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Hannah Block-Wipa, Assistant Professor of Law at Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law and Affiliated Fellow of the Yale Law School Information Savvy Project. We will discuss her article, Global Platform Governance, Private Power in the Shadow of the State, published in the Southern Methodist University Law Review. Welcome, Professor Bloch Weepa. Thanks for having me. So let's go over why did you write this paper and what's the main crux of the argument within this paper? Yeah, so I wrote this paper because I'm really interested in the ways that we conceptualize how platforms are making rules about user speech and privacy. And I'm building on work by a whole bunch of people, including Jack Balkin and Kate Klonick and Jen Daskal and others, uh, exploring the transformation of sort of private role in governing speech by individuals um, into something that looks increasingly akin to state power in some ways. And when I look at this problem, it's a problem that crosses borders in several respects. So we see platforms making rules that are applicable in many different national contexts and that have transnational force. And because these platform rules are so important to internet governance and to user speech, pressuring platforms to change their own internal policies about speech and privacy is increasingly a tactic that we see some state governments using in order to try to change policy around speech itself. So I was interested in teasing out this problem, right? If we think of platforms as functioning in ways that look kind of like what states do, how should we understand their relationship to states and their relationship to national borders? That was really the impetus for the project. So can you talk a little bit about what these kinds of transnational uh, regulations look like and these companies' relation to state uh, authorities and state regulation, and furthermore, what global platform governance is within the paper? Yeah, so what these rules, policies look like in some sense depends on the platform. But to abstract out a little bit, it's pretty common for the major tech platforms, including, you know, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, etc., to have one set of sort of terms of service or community standards that govern user speech online. And they have one set of rules that's globally applicable, even though they serve customers all around the world. So if a platform decides that 
a certain kind of user speech, let's say hate speech, for example, is against the community standards. That decision has nothing to do with what state law is in state A or state B. It's just sort of a private decision about what's permitted or not permitted on the platform. What's changing today is that because of the transnational impact of these rules, we see states pressuring platforms to apply them in different ways or more or less stringent ways, depending on the context. So a good example of this, again, in the context of hate speech, is the European Union sort of set of pressures on platforms to be more proactive about taking down hate speech pursuant to their own internal terms of service. The reason that's interesting is because what we once might have seen as sort of a firm line between the private sector's rules or state law is no longer very distinguishable. So it becomes clear that platforms have this incredibly cheap and easy way to police user speech that is sometimes not available to states, or at the very least, it's more effective for platforms to police hate speech than it would be for a state actor to do that. That creates this fundamental dynamic where it becomes very appetizing, I think, for states to try to pressure platforms to do something about all kinds of um, harmful online speech in ways that are, we might sometimes think of as positive and sometimes we might think of as negative. To me, that's the fundamental aspect of global platform governance is this dynamic that links platforms to states and that is explicitly transnational because of the global effect of platform rules. So within your paper, you refer to these uh, of private ordering in the shadow of the state. Can you expand on what private ordering is and how kinds of this plays into how uh, content looks like on the internet? Right. So a fundamental question I think that I've confronted in dealing with this paper is, and thinking about these issues, is why should platforms be able to make their own rules to begin with? In other sectors, we don't expect that industry will set and enforce its own rules without regard to state law. Private ordering is this idea that the um, sort of legal structure, quasi-legal structure for internet governance, both at the platform level, but also to some extent at the infrastructure level, is set by the industry and by non-state organizations that often um, involve the industry as stakeholders. The reason we have private ordering at all, as opposed to almost every other industry where we have more state-based regulation, is because of this bargain that was struck 
um, that permitted platforms in general to self-govern and self-regulate in the belief that doing that would stimulate innovation online. And in the paper, I draw out how there were sort of two schools of thought about whether the internet should be subject to government-based rules or not. And in the end, it didn't really matter because people who believed that the internet shouldn't be subject to the rule of one state actor emphasized that they should be able to govern themselves. And that is precisely what state-based law ultimately largely permitted. So in the United States, this took the form of sort of sweeping immunity pursuant to the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. And in Europe, there was also sort of immunity from liability under the e-commerce directive. So all of these information society actors were not going to be subject to liability for other users, individual users' speech posted on their platforms in most circumstances. What this permitted them to do is then make their own rules about what would and what wouldn't be permitted on their platforms. And that's the essence of what I mean by private ordering. So we have this structure, a legal structure that um, blesses most of these platforms with a pretty broad immunity from liability. And that opens the door for platforms to create their own set of rules about what will and won't be permitted. So that's what allows this private ordering to really blossom into what we see today, which is almost a quasi-legal structure in terms of service, community standards, uh, sets of appeal mechanisms for decisions about user speech, a whole sort of complex range of rules and instruments that have grown up within platforms designed to solve this problem of what's permitted and what's not permitted online. So how does this look when we talk about intellectual property protections and uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and in general platforms like YouTube and Twitter's used to take down copyright infringing material that's posted on their websites? What does that particularly look like within uh, the scope of platform governance? Right. So for intellectual property in particular, what we have is a notice and takedown regime. The safe harbor for immunity under the DMCA requires that if platforms receive notice that some user-generated content uh, infringes the copyright of a copyright holder, they should take it down immediately, pretty much in order to maintain their immunity from suit. In Europe, this has also long been the legal structure. So notice and takedown requires the copyright holder to notify a platform that there's infringing content and the platform takes it down. Then there can be a fight between the copyright holder and the user who posted 
the content in the first place, but generally, this is the way the removal structure works. It's coming under some strain. Um, so I wrote the paper in the last about year and a half. And in this past spring, Europe enacted uh, a new copyright directive that fundamentally is going to alter this balance, this notice and takedown structure, and require platforms to do much more to proactively respond to infringement before they get notice from a copyright holder. So what we're seeing is a shift from this traditional model that's reactive and um, specific to discrete instances of infringement to one that is proactive and much more sweeping. So I hesitate even to describe, to say much more about the architecture of notice and takedown, because I think fundamentally what Europe has done with the copyright directive will transform the way a number of platforms think about their obligations uh, to copyright holders. And that will have effects that I'm not really in the business of predicting, but I expect. I expect it to be quite transformative. And in the second part of major uh, interventions on the part of platforms, how is hate speech and uh, terrorist speech by groups like the Islamic State particularly regulated on these platforms in terms of both state requirements for these platforms and the terms of service and the takedowns that these platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, whatnot, uh, decide to use within the system. So as with copyright, what the prevailing standard for a long time was largely a notice and takedown standard for both hate speech and for terrorist speech. And what I mean is that most platforms relied heavily on users to flag speech that shouldn't be on the service. So if you flag a tweet as violating the Twitter terms, you manually, users were manually alerting these services to the presence of content that violated their own terms. In recent years, we've again seen this shift from a reactive model to more of a proactive model. So particularly in Europe, we've seen pressures for platforms to do more about hate speech and terrorist speech, and in particular to more proactively identify, flag, and remove content that is terrorist speech from the service before anybody sees it at all. And platforms have been fairly successful at doing this. So using um, a technology called hashing, they hash videos and photographs that contain um, terrorist content and have 
started to share that hashed content across platforms. So Microsoft, for example, will share hashed content with Twitter and with Facebook and with Google. And this has allowed them to be much more proactive in identifying particular images that shouldn't be online. What is problematic, I think, about this approach is the idea that um, judgment about what kinds of speech should and should not be permitted could be totally mechanized. So we see quite a few lawmakers pushing for the expansion of this kind of hashing or automated filtering in different respects and in different contexts. And I think in some ways, the success at being able to take down content so quickly and in such an automated fashion is um, misleading because it sort of signals that it is an easy technological solution to what is fundamentally a social and political problem of posting violent content on the internet. So let's dive into why something like that would be problematic. Um, what is the particular problem of uh, platforms trying to balance, you know, terror speech, hate speech, and free speech, especially given so many different jurisdictions that they work in? For example, the differences between the First Amendment uh, right of free speech and the European conception of, you know, privacy and the right to be forgotten. Uh, what are the particular critiques of platforms when they engage in this type of pri- private ordering regulation? Yeah, I, I think there are a few distinct ones. Um, one critique is that platforms just often are getting these judgments wrong. So in the context of terrorist speech and hate speech, we've seen this quite a bit um, recently with platform efforts to bar additional people who uh, post white supremacist or white nationalist content online from their services. The problem as platforms have tried to roll out these more aggressive tactics for excluding certain categories of speech is that they're sweeping up legitimate speakers and content too. So examples include civil society organizations and reporters who report on white nationalism and white supremacy have been sort of swept up in what some have called this sort of purge. So that's one problem is fundamentally an accuracy problem. And I think embedded in that are a couple of issues. One is that platforms themselves may not have the right toolkit for assessing whether speech is something that should be permitted or excluded. And that the more quickly they try to make these judgments, the more they automate them, the more errors we see sort of introduced. So that's one problem embedded 
in that sort of substantive critique, which just platforms are trying to make these judgments and they're making mistakes, perhaps because they don't have the skill set to make the judgments in the first place. But I think the second set of objections to platform governance in this area has to do with the legitimacy and accountability of what they're doing. And here I think is where the relationship between platforms and governments becomes particularly problematic because it's not as though platforms are operating in a vacuum without any pressure from say the state of Germany or the European union or the state of Texas about what should be permitted or not permitted. In fact, there is this very complicated and in some settings quite formalized arrangement that binds platform decision-making to state policy or to lawmakers or to law enforcement. And when you make that connection, I think a lot of people would like to know what do these pressures look like How are they informing the ways that platforms are making or changing their own rules? But we have very little information about how that's happening. We also have very little information about the actual rules that platforms are applying. And that is starting to change. I think that companies are becoming more aware that in order to Um, continue to have user support. They should be more public about how they apply and change the rules. But we still don't know that much about what they're doing. And we don't know that much about how they make these important decisions. So I think that's the second set of critiques is about how do we know what rules you're applying, when you're going to change them, at whose behest you're adopting them. And if we don't know the answers to those questions, how can we hold you accountable for these choices? And that, I think, is a very difficult problem to solve because solving it in some way requires undoing this set of assumptions about what makes the platform private. Um, So ordinarily we would say they don't have to tell us any of that because they're a private company and they can make the decisions that they want to make. But the more embedded the relationship with states becomes, the less satisfying that seems to me. So let's dive in a little more about the legitimacy and accountability of private governance and the potential solutions for it. Um, what does that look like, both within like the current context and what it should be looking like? Yeah, so what that looks like now um, is basically a race to play catch up. Um, Platforms, I think, are keenly aware that the choices that they've been making don't seem legitimate to at least a subset of users who are particularly interested in this. And I think one of the issues confronting platforms is that 
that subset of users is also increasingly represented by a subset of lawmakers who are particularly interested in this problem and are calling for more sort of accountable and legitimate decision-making. So what that looks like as platforms struggle to satisfy those constituencies is basically, I think they are trying to shift to more formalized, clearer, and more public modes of decision-making. And you see this, for example, in Facebook's announcement that it's going to roll out what it's calling the sort of Supreme Court of Facebook, the Facebook Oversight Board. Um, The idea that the Supreme Court of Facebook will be comprised of um, individuals from all over the world, that it will be tasked with hearing appeals, that the membership will be sort of a membership of terms, that it will be independent. All of these are ideas borrowed from sort of constitutional theory about how to structure oversight. Um, And what I think platforms are trying to do is say, hey, listen, we see that this is a problem. We know that we've alienated a lot of users. Let's borrow some of these ideas from democratic theory or constitutional theory to try to solve this problem. Will that work is a sort of separate question. Um, But I think increasingly, again, with the For example, with the Oversight Board, we see Facebook soliciting public comments in order to try to bolster, I think, both inform its own decision-making about what the Oversight Board should look like, but also bolster its credibility by being able to say, we reached out to the public, thought about what they had to say about this, and incorporated it into our proposal. So that's where we are at. I think, with legitimacy and accountability. What we have are a set of platform efforts to unilaterally (laughs) improve the situation. And then on the other hand, we have a set of legislative proposals to improve it that are, um, I think, of questionable value. What I think would be more helpful is to think about what kinds of information the public really wants to know about how these decisions are being made and how platforms could make those decisions more public. So one problem is that very little, there's there's a lot of wholesale level transparency, data about decisions that are made. there's not a lot of retail level transparency. So not a lot of examples of decisions that platforms have made about real disputes over content that aren't straightforward. And I think in order to have meaningful accountability, you need both the wholesale data about these decisions and the retail level information to 
fully understand what platforms are actually doing in this context. So I hope that we are headed toward a richer understanding of what platforms are and should be doing in this context. But um, I think that in order to get there, platforms will need to do more than just sort of pay lip service to democratic ideals in these sort of unilateral policy suggestions that they're making. So these accountability mechanisms, uh, Facebook's oversight board, the uh, quote unquote Supreme Court of Facebook, um, what are the particular negatives of such an institution within a uh, within a provider? And what are the particular critiques? I realize that there has been already some critiques over Facebook's use of uh, different news sources to fact check some of the uh, links posts to Facebook and some of the providers of news have been particularly uh, controversial. What are the particular controversies that could arise out of an institution like the Supreme Court of Facebook? I think I don't mean to suggest that the Supreme Court of Facebook is a bad thing. I think it's a good thing for Facebook to be thinking about ways that they can bolster their own legitimacy um, and accountability to users whose speech they have so much control over. But it's not enough. So I think that to me, the strongest critique of the Facebook oversight board board is that it is a unilateral development. To me, it's very unclear how the oversight board will interact with other obligations that Facebook has. So particularly if Facebook decides the oversight board as it's structured isn't working, what will it do? What are the rules that will apply when it decides to change the oversight board? How should it make those decisions? Those are the kinds of rules that we would see states grappling with. But to me, Facebook seems like it's more concerned about signaling that it cares about the substance than about really rigorously thinking about these procedures. And I worry that that could lead to problems down the road when the oversight board inevitably faces some kind of crisis, whether it's a substantive crisis or a procedural crisis, I can't predict. But that, I think, is the biggest question about the oversight board. What about the rules that govern the board itself? How should they interact with the other sets of rules from corporate governance, for example, that Facebook has to follow? I think the other problem with the oversight board is just that 
it's not clear to me that it actually does that much to solve the legitimacy and accountability problems. I think to people who are deeply skeptical of what Facebook's priors are in this space, um, the fact that the company is building a an elaborately structured outside sort of quasi-independent board to advise it isn't going to be that reassuring that it's going to change its views. Um, I think a lot of people will see the oversight board as one that's designed to sort of entrench existing practices rather than to challenge them. I think a lot of people will have deep skepticism about individuals who are appointed to the board and um, whether they are truly independent. And to me, those aren't, you know, deal breakers either, but it's worth thinking about whether those objections will be so strong that they'll ultimately undermine the effectiveness of the board as a legitimacy-enhancing tool. I don't have the answer to that because it's really hard to predict. But if I had to guess, there will be substantial pushback to the idea that the board itself is really going to promote the values that users want them wanted to promote and uh, how seriously we should take that will depend very much on the political context. Speaking of the political context, um, what are the particular negatives of proposed legislation on uh, platform governance uh, in Europe with various proposals on uh, privacy and copyright protection. And also within the United States, there was a recent bill proposed by United States Senator uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri, uh, removing the immunity tech companies get under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act by making the Federal Trade Commission uh, attest that the algorithms are politically neutral. What are the particular downsides of the various uh, attempts by states to regulate platforms through legislation to achieve political and economic and social goals? Um, I think there are two major problems here. One has to do with the idea of automating these judgments. I think at the root of a number of proposals, both in Europe and elsewhere, is the idea that automation can solve these problems, that what's happening on platforms, the problem of bad speech on platforms is fundamentally a problem of scale. That what, pro- that what platforms are trying to do is um, shut, shut off the faucet, so to speak, and that by regulating to encourage or require platforms to make automated decisions, we can push them to shut that faucet off faster. That, to me, is a problem because it signals that policymakers really have no idea how 
automation is functioning in this context. There's sort of a Wizard of Oz quality to this, which is to say these judgments are very hard. In many contexts, they are impossible with current technology for it's impossible for them to be fully automated. And so we have the illusion of automation, but it's not really a fully automated system. So as states and regulators sort of push platforms to do more, more quickly and push them to adopt more automated techniques. um, So this is visible, for example, in the draft regulation in Europe to require platforms to delete terrorist content within an hour. Um, The question is, is that technology actually feasible? And if not, what are platforms going to do in order to sort of achieve these goals? So I think that's one problem with regulation as it's sort of being suggested now is this emphasis on automation seems to me technologically unsound. The other set of questions is separate, this set of questions about neutrality. And I think, I think the Hawley proposal to amend 230 is probably unconstitutional Um, I think it probably requires uh, the state to sort of make content and viewpoint-based distinctions in ways that are untenable, and I'm doubtful that it's going anywhere. What I think is particularly interesting about the Holly Bill, though, is the way that it's uniting two, what we've historically thought of as two separate sets of concerns. One set of concerns is about the bad speech problem. A separate set of concerns is about the um, pl- the dominance of these platforms and the unchecked power that they wield. Holly has both of those concerns in mind, and I think he's in some ways trying to solve an antitrust problem by suggesting a speech solution. It's not at all clear to me that those two should be going hand in hand, but I think that the new wave of platform regulation does introduce these interesting questions about whether new obligations are structured in a way that systematically advantages incumbents in the marketplace because only they will have the infrastructure to comply. We saw that, for example, in the context of the European amendments to for the European Copyright Directive and its changes to copyright law and intermediary liability in that context. The issue is that the more stringent the obligations become, the more it looks like they're going to punish new entrants into a marketplace. And that could have a weird, perverse effect on competition. So that's the other set of problems, I think, that needs to be untangled in this new breed of regulation. What will the effect on the marketplace be of the new regulation? And the other side of that coin is, are we trying to solve a market problem with a speech solution or vice versa? And if so, is that the right way to tackle this policy problem? So let's step back. 
why do all of these developments matter to internet users and to regulators and to、uh, civilians and civil society organizations? Look, I think this matters to anybody who wants to post a photo of themselves breastfeeding to Facebook. I think we've seen over and over again that the ways that platforms make and enforce their own rules have effects on regular people and sweep up regular user speech on these services that we. Have entrenched as sort of core features of how we communicate with each other. Facebook, I think, for a lot of people, is a critical way that they maintain their relationships and their friendships and their social circles. And we should be mindful of the power that these companies have over what we might otherwise think of as our own private communication. What I think is interesting about the international angle to this is the degree to which those judgments by platforms about what should and shouldn't be online are going to be indelibly affected by what is happening in other parts of the world, and I think that's always been true to some extent. But now we see that becoming much more visible, and it creates a dynamic that we might not previously have thought about as United States-based users. So I think that these global pressures will matter to many people,、um, many regular people who aren't posting hate speech or、um, terrorist content or copyright infringement. But the same sets of rules. The same sets of obligations can easily be imported to other factual settings, and so I think that what we're seeing now is a struggle to define what these precedents will look like without much certainty, unfortunately. And as a final question, what should、uh, regulators, platforms, and people take away from your article? What a final question!、Um, I think regulators and platforms should be mindful of the global effects of national regulation, and they should be particularly mindful if, as many regulators are, they are concerned about a leveling down of public discourse. I think regulators and platforms should both be attuned to. The potential impact that these new obligations are going to have across the globe on issues of public concern, on the ability of political communities to engage,、um, and the ability of social movements to organize. So they should be aware of the potential far-reaching consequences of what they're doing for users. I hope that users are going to continue to demand more from their platforms and their regulators, and that user mobilization will prompt platforms to be more thoughtful and responsible about how they respond to these issues. Right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Blokwipa, for coming on to the podcast to talk about your excellent article. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. 
Oh, 